And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. This is the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast with your hosts, Michael Campbell and Greg Howell. I'm Michael Campbell and hosting the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast, the little crossover with my good friend, Matthew Lucio. Also, this is going to be an Adventist History Extra, so you'll find it in both places. So, and we are joined by Kevin Burton and Nicholas Kirsten, who is the Director of Archives for the Seventh-day Baptist uh, denomination and... Uh, for those who don't know Kevin, he is the uh, director of the Center for Adventist Research, basically our Adventist archives at Andrews University. Yeah, you know and, Kevin. Yeah, the, and anyone that listens to our podcast should should know who Kevin is. So, And uh, we are where? We are in a break room. <laughs> <laughs> very, very majestic location. It's one of a kind. Oh, we're in the, the Seventh-day Baptist. This is Seventh-day Baptist without the hyphen. This is the big difference. That's right. We should and, talk a, and, a about that hyphen. and a capital, capital D. And a capital D. Capital D. I don't know why these differences exist, but... but they do. Yeah. We're at the Seventh-day Baptist Center. Really, it's a headquarters. Yep. Little headquarters, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they have the archives. And so uh, Matthew and I have been having fun visiting archives yesterday at Aurora University, now today in the Seventh-day Baptist archives. And so... Uh, we just want to kind of introduce our two special guests for this episode for the time that we have here to talk about, uh, you know, Nick, first of all, some of our Adventist listeners may not be mm-hmm. as familiar with the Seventh-day Baptist denomination. Just kind of give a little snapshot for those that might not be familiar with, with the, your tradition. Sure. So Seventh-day Baptists come out of the English Reformation. Uh, following the Reformation on the continent, uh, Congregationalists moved back to England uh, in the 17th century, and so there was movement that direction. Uh, the first Baptist churches, you guys may have heard of somebody, like if you're familiar with Baptist history, uh, John Smith, like Baptist, baptized himself in the Thames. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, that's like 1609, 1610, 1611. By 1650, there were in London uh, meeting regularly, well, by 1630, 1653 meeting regularly, 1650, books being written in the London area circulated in England advocating both the Seventh-day Sabbath and the Baptist distinctives. And so the first Seventh-day Baptist congregations would be 1653-54. We think we can confirm 1657. Um, Then by 1671 in the United States, uh, where the conference here started. Um, But then for uh, our conference started in 1802, and has been functioning since then. Uh, in the 1960s, we formed a World Federation for uh, conferences from around the world. And at this point, there's about 20 official members there and significantly more secondary groups that are sort of in orbit but are not actually officially members. Uh, we are significantly smaller than the Adventist portion of the Sabbatarian family, but we have an older history. Yeah, uh, just so, those ballparks. Someone may be wondering, what, yeah. what ballpark are we talking? So we're talking roughly 1650 to the present. Okay. So, I mean, that's a mm-hmm. we can't prove before mm-hmm. 1650 anybody held those beliefs as mm-hmm. we hold them now. Mm-hmm. But from 1650 onward, pretty that's a much. a long history. It's pretty yeah. long. I mean, for, for, to kind of put it in perspective, so, I mean, if you're going to track back to Adventist history, and obviously the roots go beyond, mm-hmm. you know, 1844, but it's almost like two centuries further back yeah. than... 
than those places go. So, and there's obviously, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, but the connections between yeah. the Seventh-day Baptist observance, observance of the Seventh-day Sabbath and how that came to the Adventists and mm-hmm. those kinds of pieces. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but a long history, and we're proud of it. Yeah. About how many members, uh, how many Southern Baptists, Southern Baptists? <laughs> <laughs> where, where are you I wish again? we had those numbers. <laughs> where are you again? Seventh-day Baptists. <laughs> I'm in the break room. <laughs> you ate cheese curds earlier. We don't do this, the Southern, the Southern Baptist stuff. No. Um, there was no sweet tea there. There was no sweet tea. We don't do that either. So in the United States at this point, there's about 70 member congregations and probably roughly total about 110 or so groups. Um, Somewhere between th- probably 3,000 or so people left in this country in terms of where that's at. Okay. Uh, worldwide, actually, is where the growth has been. I, that's a, a global movement at mm-hmm. this point, mm-hmm. to the global east and the global south. Mm-hmm. Um, those 20 conferences, we try to estimate, trying to get numbers in some of these countries is very difficult. If you guys have ever dipped your toes in that water trying to figure out how many there are. Yeah. Uh, but we estimate somewhere between fifty and 75,000 worldwide. Okay, very good. Now, Kevin, I want to talk to you and ask you about where where does where does Seventh Day Baptist and Seventh Day Adventist history intersect? Like where where do where get, get us on the map here? Yeah, get us on the map. You guys are trying to tell me get me to tell you that. Come on, I don't do that. I just do anti-slavery, right? <laughs> well, yeah, they they go back to um, at least 1844, and I suspect actually through my anti-slavery research that uh, the Adventist connections with Seventh-day Baptists over discussions of the Sabbath go back to at least 1840. Um, and the real thing is there is that in 1840 and 40, you know, through 44, there's a lot of debates in the anti-slavery circles over the Sabbath. Mm. Um, there's a big conference held in the Chardon Street Chapel in 1840 and 41, and the Sabbath is a major topic of conversation, and there is at least one Seventh-day Baptist minister there. And so there is at least a point of contact from 1840 forward. But for Seventh-day Adventists, the traditional story that we tell is you go to Washington, New Hampshire Church, and you have Rachel Oaks Preston, who's the member there. And in a nutshell, she is a Seventh-day Baptist. She becomes involved in the Millerite movement and so forth. And uh, by 1844, she's convinced Frederick Wheeler to uh, accept the Seventh-day Sabbath, and he leads the rest of the congregation into uh, this faith. And before the Great Disappointment, you have a congregation who is believing the soon coming of Christ, and they are also keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath. Um, and so in some sense, we call that the first Seventh-day Adventist church, although there are other churches out there yeah. who argue that they're the first and that they always go with some technicality about what does it mean to be a Seventh-day Adventist, yeah. <laughs> et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Sabbath-keeping Yeah, Sabbath right, 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 right. So however right. we want to define that, they're keeping sure. the Sabbath, they believe in the Second Advent Doctrine, and they are in Washington, New Hampshire, and that building still stands, which is kind of cool. So if I'm hearing you right, there, there's a kind of a crossover where all the way back to the time of the Millerites, where oh, yeah. there's people... Uh, Seventh-day Baptists interested in the Millerites and Absolutely, yes. Millerites interested in the Sabbath, if I'm hearing your story Absolutely right. Absolutely correct. And the first issue of the Sabbath Recorder in 1844, which actually is published um, in the same office of the Millerite Midnight Cry, mm-hmm. uh, number nine Spruce Street in New York City, um, there is articles there about uh, the overlap between Adventism and, uh, and Seventh-day Sabbath keeping. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, George B. Utter, who is the editor of that paper, is putting forth this argument. If you want to prepare for the Second Advent, what better way to prepare than by also, you know, keeping God's Sabbath, uh, mm-hmm. which is a fascinating sort of uh, argument to be making shortly before, uh, you know, the Great Disappointment. 
And so some people, at least in Washington, New Hampshire, for sure, mm-hmm. they buy into that and they, they, uh, they accept that argument mm-hmm. and that becomes an important uh, component for preparing for the end for them. That's just incredible to think about that in the same office space that, that there's this kind of uh, same building, whatever, there's crossover where obviously they'd be walking in to work perhaps and crossing each other on the street or whatever. It's not just, it's not just that because mm-hmm. at this time uh, people did not typically receive their newspapers at their home. Mm-hmm. You know, we do that now with the post office, but that's not how it worked. And so you had to have an agent or you went to the publishing office itself and you picked your paper there up weekly. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if it was a daily paper, it would be daily. Mm-hmm. And so you actually have a social space mm-hmm. uh, where people are ebbing and flowing all of the time. And what's fascinating about it is that these offices are also tied with anti-slavery offices. And so you have abolitionists, Adventists, Seventh-day Baptists, all interacting with each other on a daily basis there in New York City. I didn't think about it, but it's another connect. The Seventh-day Baptists had decided in 1843 to write a letter to the Baptist denominations about Sabbath keeping. Mm. And so that publication would have been in a similar kind of an arrangement, a long argument for the Sabbath. Uh, it was sent to the meeting of the Baptists in 1843. Mm-hmm. 1843 and 44 was, was when the Baptist denomination was splitting over slavery. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And so it arrived, this huge number of printings of this were sent all over the country. It arrived just in time to be ignored <laughs> by the Baptist <laughs> because they were fighting about something else, right? Right, right, and right. It, but it's the same slavery abolition space that they were fighting about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where the Sabbath argument arrives to the Baptists late, but at the same time we were circulating at every place else. Yeah. So in terms of that message going out in those spaces, there's that, again, that weird kind of triangle between Sabbath keeping and and what's happening with slavery and then the groups that are talking about one or the other. Right, 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 right. The intersections of those spaces. So Seventh-day Baptists care deeply about social issues. Have, the way back, yes. and, and so are Adventists. So there's this kind of interesting connection here. Yeah. So, Nick, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more. We were talking as we, we've been walking through this building and you've been showing us things and going through the history of Seventh-day Baptists. Were Seventh-day Baptists into this anti-slavery movement? And, and if so, I mean, we're getting that hint here in this conversation. How deeply were they involved in this? Very deeply. Um, it's hard to put exact figures on these. things. We were talking a little bit earlier about kind of the Underground Railroad. At this point, there are reasons to think that Seventh-day Baptists may have been sort of lock, stock, and barrel invested just by the where the locations of churches were and pathways and relational uh, pieces that were already connected and just sort of the, the evidence that we have that there were people moving in those spaces, it kind of tends to run along the pathways that Seventh-day Baptists had made north and south. Uh, we're actually fairly close. We were talking earlier about a, a, a close. We're in southern Wisconsin here. The local SDB church is in Milton, Wisconsin. Um, the, a known Underground Railroad site, they were bold enough to actually keep records when being caught would have gotten you put in prison. Right. And so we have, we have definitely some of those sites, and there's pretty heavy evidence in several others, that that was a case. And it wasn't just a function of helping fugitive slaves escape. Our conference meetings going back to the 1830s have some fiery speeches talking about you know some pretty crazy stuff, secession and some very heavy reactions if things didn't go that way. It's interesting. Those things were happening, but also they weren't talking about war as a solution. Mm. So there was all this fiery rhetoric and not a lot of talk about the war. The war starts, um, and there's sort of silence and then everyone says, well, if this is what it has to be, this is what it has to be. Mm-hmm. But in terms of, you know, we were basically a northern phenomena. 
There were not a lot of SDB churches south of the Mason-Dixon line. Uh, the ones that were primarily were in West Virginia, where you're talking about, you know, you're already dealing with like some, it's already kind of border state space. Right. Um, and so it, there was, I, we were a, we absolutely abolitionist people. The interesting part isn't that as much as it's what people were trying to do to demonstrate and protest and participate. And there's a variety of ways they were trying to do that, some of which are controlled by where they were. You know, being being an abolitionist in West Virginia and being one in Wisconsin or Connecticut are very different endeavors. Yes. <laughs> so. Right. Absolutely. Now we've been going through some of these these uh, wonderful records that you have here, and we've been noticing in some of these early Seventh Day Baptist publications references to William Miller mm-hmm. and to the Millerites, and so obviously they're aware of what's going on. Like everybody else, they're in conversation with what's going on. Uh, I'm just going to throw this out there for anybody. What, were, what what are the kind of things that we're reading here? What are Seventh-day Baptists saying about William Miller in this movement? I think early on it was curiosity. I mean, Miller himself has some connections to Baptists, so it was another person talking about these sorts of things. Um, there were already overlaps, as we've discussed. I think just as kind of as a kind of maybe a first salvo, I think it's reasonable to think that it was a, a broad enough theological conversation that at least Seventh-day Baptists thought it was worth having in that period in the run-up to 1844. And so uh, the, the, the argument that Utter makes mm-hmm. is an interesting one, and it's, it's kind of a utilitarian argument, right? Yeah. Like, look, whether this is right or wrong, keep Sabbath. Like, right. if, 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 <laughs> if, if, there, if he is coming back, why wouldn't you do it? Right. If, it if it turns out that that's not right, well, then you're doing the right thing and you just keep doing it. Right. That's a very utilitarian sort of an argument, right? Mm-hmm. A very practical argument, and it's the kind of arguments SDBs have been making about Sabbath for quite a long time. You want me to add to that? I don't know if I I don't know if I can or should, but I think it might differ on the editor too. So like Michael and I were going through the Seventh Day Baptist Register um, for the first time just a few well I guess minutes ago, and then a little before lunch as well. And there were a few articles in there that were more against the Millerite uh, movement, but that's not edited by George Utter, and so that could be. Uh, there's a regional difference there. This is in upstate New York um, in Madison County, and uh, Utter is in New York City. And so there may have been a difference there too, but there's also some positive things in there. They published at least one letter. It was letter. mixed, wasn't it? It was yeah. mixed. They mm-hmm. published at least one of William Miller's letters that he wrote to Himes. Mm-hmm. And so we haven't had a chance to analyze that. Right. Um, but it, but nevertheless, Utter's you know, comments in 1844 are striking and interesting and, yeah, utilitarian. What an interesting way to try to get them into the Sabbath. And it worked for some at least. Sure, so. sure. So I want to fast forward for the sake of time because we, we have a limited amount of time that we have. But at, at some point later on, not too far on, I mean, obviously there's initial interactions, connections with Millerism, Rachel Oaks, and so on. But uh, at, at some point, there's a actual kind of a more official kind of exchange and uh, relationship uh, that, that takes place the late 1860s through the 1870s. Uh, let's talk about that for just a moment. So in Seventh-day Baptist life, there was an enormous push after the Civil War to really push on um, the Sabbath as a, as a moral issue, and one that was getting pushed back. Um, we didn't talk about this earlier, but like in the 1880s, there was moving towards the Blair Bill and mm-hmm. trying to make Sunday the official day of right. worship. There's, there's this We've push. We've heard of that somewhere. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> um, there's this push, obviously, among Seventh-day Baptists to try to get the Sabbath piece out. Mm-hmm. And I think there's obvious overlap in that interest in that run-up. And so sending delegates back and forth between the conferences was done. There were some efforts, obviously, when, you know, in 1888, when that conversation was happening, 
both Seventh-day Adventists and Seventh-day Baptists went to Capitol Hill mm-hmm. specifically to speak about the legislation, sent representatives, et cetera. I think Andrews was there. I'm pretty sure we sent A.H. Uh, Lewis. A.T. Jones, for yeah, sure. We, we yeah. So I, yeah. I, 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 that you guys know that better than I would. Yeah. But there was, I mean, obviously everybody went there who had an interest in that space. Right. Um, and the, in the buildup to that, the cooperation about Sabbath, I think, was important in those spaces. There was also obviously some familial relationships and friendly relationships. There were Seventh-day Baptists who became Adventists. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, obviously there's connection already. When you already have that familiarity, it becomes very simple. Mm-hmm. to try yeah. to relate in those ways. Right. Even before the 1870s, 1860s, like in, back in the 1850s, there are some Seventh-day Baptists who become Adventists, and they remain Seventh-day Baptists while they are also subscribing to the Sabbath, you know, uh, sev- uh, what do we call it? What is it called? The Adventist Review. It changed names several times. Yeah. Review and Herald. So <laughs> yeah. um, it's interesting to see that every now and then because it crops up, but you have to do a little sure. bit of digging and compare the newspapers, you know, back and forth, and you see, oh, they were kind of playing both sides here, which is kind of fun. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. It was fluid. Yeah. You know, Adventism was very fluid in those early years. But right. then this official delegate period is fascinating, too. And, yeah. and I have to put this little eureka moment that I had for my little happy dance in the archive of John and Sarah Lindsay. Sarah Lindsay, for our listeners who may not be aware, was the first uh, woman preacher to have a ministerial license in Adventist history. And she and her family, the Halleck family, were Seventh-day Baptists. And so there was a strong enough relationship that they were one of those representatives, at least one of those times in that exchange of delegates. And and so here in the Seventh-day Baptist archives, uh, Nick was kind enough to kind of search, help us look in the files, and there was a handwritten uh, autobiographical memoir of, of the Seventh-day Baptist church for where she was from in Ulysses and so on. Mm-hmm. So you just never know what you're going to find in the archives. So um, I'm just so excited about that. I had yeah. to just share. We needed to bottle up or, or video Michael's happy oh, dance right after he, yes. after that was found. It's grounds for discipline in the Adventist church, but, <laughs> but wholly warranted. To, to be to clear, say. there but, was no actual dancing. <laughs> Uh, which would get you in trouble in the Baptist tradition. So there was no dancing. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Nick, for saving me. You could get disfellowship from two churches. Oh, my. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, won't have any, I won't have any home. Yeah, there you go. But, uh, you know, and, of course, uh, we're, we're still hoping and holding out for that picture for you. I know that. Of number nine, Spruce Street. That's then you'll right. have your happy dance, too. I, I hope we can find that, yeah. I've got a mental splinter somewhere that I've seen a picture. I'll have to see if I can figure out where it is and dig it up. Well, that's the beauty of archives. You're always looking, and it's it's a, a quest, isn't it? I mean, it's it's sleuthing through those materials and what you can find. You you have to go by what you can find, right? Yeah. Not the history that we wish was there, but we can actually document and 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 so. Thank you, Nick, for helping us today because it's helping me to fill in some of these gaps of that relationship between our our two uh, denominations. Yep. Can we talk a little bit more about these? We, we just mentioned very briefly this idea of sending delegates to the conferences. Let's let's flesh that out a little bit in case people don't know what that was all about. That sounds actually kind of ecumenical. Mm. Can we use that E word? At least on a limited scale. Yeah, We're going to be ecumenical with people who yeah. keep the Seventh-day Sabbath. Yeah, so <laughs> two, <groups>. two different <laughs> denominations. That's, that's right. That's that real ecumenical. <laughs> but isn't that what ecumenism, and, you know, there's a lot of different definitions, so we've got to be careful yeah, yeah, also, yeah. just like we have to define dancing. I'm going to call Michael's thing a dance. I, I still, I'm going to still defend that. It was a dance. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see him get kicked out of two churches. No, I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot. I thought you are my friend, Kevin. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, I left the popcorn at home. Oh, yeah. man. You've always got Church of God Seventh Day. All right. <laughs> I, I still have a backup. Okay, good, good to hey, know. And there's Seventh Day Pentecostals. There's Seventh Day Mormons. 
Were you trying to really get rid of <laughs> You have options, okay? I got options. So, but, but, you know, that is very interesting because there is this relationship enough that allows leaders from two different denominations that share a common interest to say, hey, let's talk. Tell, tell me more about that. Well, there were fraternal delegates sent back and forth to the, to the various conferences. I expect on the SDBN, some of that is the people who are most willing to go. Some of that's geography, <laughs> you know, geography and, and, and affinity. Mm-hmm. Um, but that there were, I know, because we have references to who came here to in our minutes, mm-hmm. and I know we made choices about who we sent. And obviously that participation is meant to encourage Christian brotherhood, fellowship. Mm-hmm. I suspect around the Sabbath stuff specifically, right. joint action in terms of advocacy. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, and I seem to recall, I'd have to look at my notes, but like even James White, I think, addressed the Seventh-day Baptist General Conference and had prayer for the delegates. And, and I, I, mean, that, I do believe that's true, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it kind of... Kind of not just like, hey, I'm in the back corner, but... No, no, no. They gave them right. time to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, whenever Nathan uh, V. Hole, uh, or is it Nathaniel? I'm not Nathan. Sure. Nathan. Nathan. Nathan Vardemol. V. Hole. Whenever he, he's there at one of these conferences, he actually is allowed to preach from the pulpit, you know, and so forth. And so this is, this is definitely about official delegates being sent back and forth where they give voice. Um, the question is, did they have the ability to vote? I don't know. I would bet not. I don't think so. But so they were like at least given a voice. Invitees or <laughs> James something. James White makes a motion that the Seventh-day Baptist becomes Seventh-day Adventist. Is there a second? <laughs> <laughs> the awkward. So would, yeah. That would be awkward either way. If there was a second or if there wasn't, it's equally awkward. <laughs> <laughs> it's be a James White thing to do. Oh, right. my goodness. <laughs> but but there they are. They're, they're doing that. And I think they do that through the early 1880s. At some point, they stopped doing that um yeah and i'm not clear about exactly when it stopped i didn't get a chance to look and find the exact date mm-hmm. I, th- I think it comes down to there was enough mutual interest in some of the same geographic locations and there was some spats between local congregations mm-hmm. that just made the continued participation a little bit more difficult yeah. and of course both movements at that point are not so big mm-hmm. that you don't know the right. names of the people you're squabbling with over there right mm-hmm. and that that very familiarity makes engagement when you've already had conflict and there's no difference more difficult to kind of swallow and move forward through. I know Mm -hmm. it definitely goes on into the mid to late 1870s. I don't know that it continues after James White's death in 1881, but uh, Nathan Varnum Hull is there. Um, I encountered him uh, when I was doing my MA thesis on How's he doing? Uh, well, okay, yeah, not, not not that kind of encounter. More more of like uh, oh, we can get all kinds of interesting. <laughs> the, history, okay. the historic, the historic the next, present. That's right. The next thing is going to go is I'm in, I'm into spiritualism. I'm communicating with that's the right. spirit that's or something. Right. That's right. He danced. You had a seance. Okay. So now, there's, now there's two of us who haven't been to this, this fellowship. We're going to have to make sure. Mike, yeah, we're, it's not over yet. Yeah, Mike, Michael and I are both on our way out. Apparently, like, even though we didn't know it, didn't know it. Yeah. Well, anyways, he, he's there and he comments on George Butler idea of leadership where Butler is trying to make uh, James White the sole head of the Adventist church, almost like a sort of Catholic monarchical kind of whatever uh, view of leadership. And so uh, Hull is quite disturbed by this and he comments on, on, on that and so forth. Um, so it's at least going on through 1875. Um, I think beyond that a little bit, but I don't know if it continued after James White's death in 81. I that doesn't mean he was the sole person responsible for making it happen on the Adventist side, but right. I, don't I, have, know, I have a vague recollection that there was a period of time where it didn't happen after every year, yeah. where, people, they, where both sides got out of the habit of doing it, and then yeah. it just sort of like faded out. 
Yeah, but it definitely, ha- I'd say it definitely happened more than a decade. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It sure. might, be, might even absolutely. be close Maybe to about two decades. Yeah. Yeah. Might be about two decades of mm-hmm. this. Yeah, and that's right. I think there's also a brief, because I've heard some church leaders talk about it in the 20th century, where it was briefly revived. I don't know how long that was, but where there, at some point in the 20th century, there was a brief attempt at reviving that. That sounds right to me. I, again, yeah. I didn't get a chance to look and confirm, but I think in the 50s and 60s would be the likely place. Mm-hmm. Well, let's revive it again. Nick, 2024, our general conference session is going to be in St. Louis again. We officially invite you to yeah. come. We officially invite you oh, to wait, come. 2024. Can we see that officially? <laughs> we can do whatever we want. We I'm can already, say whatever we want. I'm, I'm already out, so. <laughs> oh, I, I, yeah, now, now, this was Matthew's suggestion, right, so I'm now, now he's going to get put his name on my apple. Who told you you could do this? Oh, Matthew yeah. said it was fine. <laughs> and now he's on his way out because he doesn't have the authority. I'm the last he's man standing. standing. I don't know. He, he had the Seventh blessing Baptist of the conference win. president, right. I think. So. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah, John, if you're listening, uh, please, please save, save your pastor. Uh, hey, <laughs> John Grice, the... Illinois Conference President. Yeah, that's what he's talking so, about. So, so now we go him. witch hunting for him too, right? Yeah, let's, <laughs> just, let's just ring him in on this too. <laughs> so for those of you listening, those of you listening, we've had a, an amazing day today. We've been sleuthing through the archives. One of the great things is going down into the basement to the vault where they have the inner recesses. You're really making this sound like how everybody already imagines these things. Yeah. Yeah. He lit a torch. <laughs> That's right. He followed That's right. the tunnel. If you've That's seen, right. if There's you've a seen National Treasure, That's right. a series we, of very dangerous ladders that yep. were hastily yep. constructed sometime in the 1730s. We went through the yes. catacombs, right? The catacombs. Right. So let's talk about the catacombs. Uh, <laughs> tell us about some of those treasures. So I mean, we, as a, as a group of people, have been very fortunate in the sorts of records that have landed here. So... Um, obviously, finding copies of things past a certain age, anything older than 1750, is exceedingly rare. You don't find copies, either because of use or because, in some cases, like especially with Sabbatarian literature, um, prior to that, if Parliament found it, they just burned it. Yeah, and there it probably weren't many copies ever printed. Not many copies printed, mm-hmm. and it was illegal to own in some cases. Yeah. And so yeah. there just aren't that many copies. Uh, the, one of the older treasures in our collection is um, a 1630s volume by Theophilus Braeburn on the Sabbath. Um, obviously, he's one of the early writers. He was a Church of England cleric, for those of you who aren't familiar, um, who was trying to lobby that group of people to pull on the Sabbath and, and keep it. Ultimately, was not successful and got some negative feedback from that. Um, from both the church infrastructure and from the monarch himself, um, and, and pulled back somewhat. But that we have a copy of that here in the archives. You guys saw it today, so we took some pictures of it. It's, it's, it's very cool to have yeah, those sorts so, of things. So Nick Sandelmeyer, if you're listening, that was you know your opportunity because uh, he did his uh, some of his graduate work and writing his thesis was on Nicholas uh, Brayburn. And, Theophilus, uh, or Theophilus Brayburn, excuse yeah. me, thank Gotta you. Got to keep you accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Nicholas, yeah. Yeah. Nicholas, yeah. Nicholas Bound. Nick, yeah. Nicholas Bound, we saw that too, yeah. but but these are treasures. I mean, yeah. and I think these are the only copies in the Western Hemisphere, if I'm not mistaken. I think so. And, you know, how we got them is kind of fascinating. So we had a pastor, uh, a couple of pastors in England, mm-hmm. um, both of whom had some English back, or American background, um, the second of whom was, a, was an American missionary to Haiti, and then came back, came became a Sabbath keeper, and then went over after a mission trip to Palestine, which is a whole other story. He ends up as the pastor of our oldest congregation in Milliard, uh, London, England. But he was an antiquarian, and so he would walk around and just find copies of these older books. Uh, his wife at the time had come into a collection of books from her father, who had a similar passion. And eventually these books made it here. And so we have this kind of amazing trust 
to keep these, you know, hundreds of year old books. Treasures. It's incredible yeah, yeah. To, and to kind of have them that close. And was this Jones? The So it's William Henry Black as the first pastor in okay. Millard. The second, he had his daughter, Theodora, then marries William E. Jones, okay. who had lost his wife on mission on the mission in Palestine. Mm. And they get married and they have this enormous collection. Wow. They had no children uh, who were interested in the books. And so they came to the States. Mm-hmm. They were at Alfred University for a period of time and then joined uh, the historical archive that I now help steward. So yeah. it's this kind of long, circuitous route. Yeah. You know, if you can imagine like some book, somebody with like a, a Gutenberg press knocking out a copy sure. of one of these yeah. books yeah. Yeah. to like a basement in Janesville, Wisconsin, yeah. you know, in a vault <laughs> environment. It's, it's incredible to think about. It is. It is. Can you say, can I ask him a question? Can yeah. you say two no, seconds about the, the Seventh-day Baptist and Fifth Monarchy co- connection? Because oh, that's yeah, fun. That made a it's great fascinating. conversation right, this, so, is, this is for yeah. Lisa Diller. So let's yeah. back up. So, so for fifth, me, I like it. For okay. folks who aren't familiar, <laughs> uh, in the period around when Seventh-day Baptists were formed in England, there was some question about whether there should be a monarch. And so um, the Commonwealth period is when the Cromwells overthrew the king, and from 1640 to 1660, they're running the place. Well, in that process, there was a group of people who said, we should never have a king again. And even before that, one of the run-ups was, there shouldn't be a king. Jesus is the king. If we're Christian people, we don't need a king. And then you start interpreting prophecy, the fifth monarch from the, is the, okay, the Daniel fifth. Daniel 2. Right, right. Yeah. The mm-hmm. fifth monarch should be Jesus. That's the one who's coming back. And they wanted to make that happen. Early on, that group was signed by many Baptists. Lots and lots of people thought that was a great idea. Increasingly, the group of people became increasingly violent and kind of uh, revolutionary in the way they approached those things. And so Seventh-day Baptists, many of them remained even after that portion. One, uh, John James, was actually executed in 1666 because of some of these views that he held. And so you can go read his speech and, and find out what, what happened. And he says there, you know, I'm a Seventh-day Sabbatarian. I'm a Baptist. I do these things. And, you know, I'm being killed because I believe of my, my, my religious faith. And so we kind of have talked about him as kind of the Seventh-day Baptist martyr at different points. That might be a little bit overwrought historically. <laughs> but, but the idea is that these people really did acknowledge that Jesus should be the only king um, as it became increasingly revolutionary and increasingly difficult to be a part socially. Many of them pulled back from that level and said, well, Jesus can be our king and we can still, you know, engage the government. But that fifth monarchy thing, the connection was so tight for so long that there are, uh, W.T. Whitley, kind of a famous English Baptist uh, historian, suggested at one point that he thought that the movements were actually inseparable, that wow. that there was, that all the Seventh-day Baptists were fifth monarchy people. Wow. And that uh, very, very tight in those spaces. Now, obviously, what that means is in 1660, with the restoration of the monarchy, the SDBs took a beat. In England, and that's they did. They they absolutely took difficulties. Um, at one point, the Milliard Church had all of their men in prison for a period of two years. Wow! Uh, if you can imagine the sorts of issues we're talking about, um, uh, Francis Bamfield, one of my personal favorites, uh, he he was actually converted to the Seventh Day Sabbath in prison. Oh, cool! Um, had a congregation he built in prison. And when they got out, he had a congregation. Wow! And he spent like of the last twenty one years of his life, and I'm going to mess the numbers up here. But I, this is an estimate. I don't have the, the, the paper in front of me. I wrote that on. But something like the like 12 of the last 21 years of his life were spent in prison hmm. at, with more or less of the congregation he converted while in prison. Yeah. Interesting. That's the kind of stuff that you see after the restoration of the monarchy. So Seventh-day Baptists in England after 1660, there was enormous energy and actually growth in that period. The, the old Tertullian, right? The blood of the martyrs, the seed yeah, of the yeah, church. Yeah. The, there's a... There's a very important sense in which that is what happened with Seventh-day Baptists. Mm. Interestingly, after the generation that got persecuted did all this growth, 
The generation after is the place that fell off the table. Mm. It wasn't the people who were persecuted. It was the generation after the people who were persecuted when it actually became, when it was tolerated, after the toleration, which is a fascinating study in like humanity and faith mm. and, and how faith gets passed on and discipleship and history and the place where all those things sort of meet. It's fascinating. Sounds like we need to persecute more. I, I'm feeling a little persecuted today. <laughs> yeah. That's why we invent persecution in the Adventist church. Uh, okay. Everything that happens is, a, is the devil trying to get us. I want, I want to come back to one interesting point. Jones, who's there in London. Yeah. He becomes good friends with uh, Jane Andrews, our first official Adventist missionary, stays, hosts Jane Andrews when he goes back and forth across yeah. Europe. So, uh, again, there's these multiple layers of relationships and uh, exchange of ideas as well as uh, uh, just not just personal relationships, but also officially between these two denominations. So, And, and Andrews was was frequently communicating with more than just Jones. I, mm-hmm. we, I'm fairly confident he was writing with A.H. Lewis also. Yeah. And they yeah. were both publishing on Sabbath pretty heavily in that period. So and there was long correspondence there. The history of the Sabbath. So Absolutely. they just want to, yeah. you know, hey, oh my goodness, here's this guy that has books, and Andrews likes books. These guys are bibliophiles, so... I like books. <laughs> I like the Fifth Monarchist. <laughs> I like books. I love it. You know, what's interesting to me is in talking about these, these relationships is like, you know, these different Christian groups, we have a lot in common with other... Christian groups. Obviously, there's plenty of things. At least one. At least one. One would hope, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of things that we have in common with Roman Catholics or with Baptists, of course, or with us. But it's like certain bits of theology end up becoming more important in terms of the relationship between groups than others. So you can hold something in common with the Catholics about something, but for Adventists, it's like, yeah, that doesn't matter. If we have it uncommon. Three quarters of our, or two quarter, two thirds of our names are the same. Seventh day, two That's words. Right. But the <laughs> hyphen, but the hyphen. It's oh, all about the hyphen. So actually, Seventh Day Baptists were using that name, and I think what ended up happening was that that Seventh Day Adventists copyrighted their name first. Is that it? I think that's what ended up happening. And so, so the reason we were spaced with the D is because yeah. they couldn't get a copyright that's on that. That's so embarrassing. There's something about that in the uh, <laughs> Seeking a Sanctuary book. I don't remember. I read it a long time ago by uh, Bull and Lockhart. They say something about that. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember what they say. It's a good book. You should read it. I should pull that one out. <laughs> I haven't read I, that one. I like so. books. I like books. <laughs> I like books. Hey, by the way, when we showed up this morning, Matthew, guess who was walking the parking yes. lot? Of course, yeah. Kevin got here before before Michael and I did, and we just pulled into the parking lot here, and he's just pacing in the parking lot, holding a book, reading it like this is a Jane Austen novel. It's wonderful. How do you know it wasn't? <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I like Jane Austen. Uh, I've, ne- I've never read Jane Austen. What? I- what? Oh, I'm sorry. I like history. <laughs> I'll be oh, oh, that was a low blow. Oh, I know, um, I know, I know, I know. I, I probably should just lost all of our female I just lost yeah. a lot of... A lot of people who and me. Kevin, I thought you were more supportive of women. Yeah. No, no, no. Oh, just because I have Listen, I'm not supportive of women. No, that's exactly I just what lost it means. my headphones. My goodness. <laughs> Listen to me. I skipped class at Southern to watch the BBC Pride and Prejudice series. I watched the first one before class, and it was so good. I'm like, I got to finish this. I watched it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I want to come back. I want to come back to this. I got to salvage like this. You like books? <laughs> I want to come back and talk about this because I was just leafing through some old uh, Sabbath recorders, and there are articles advocating that women should not be silent. That's important to understand the biblical context and that women should be allowed to speak and have leadership and 
it sounds to me, even be pastors. Talk about the role of women in, in Seventh-day Baptist history. So there's a few things happening there. One of the things yeah. is that our congregations have never been huge. Okay. And so with the ecclesiology that we have, you're not, you're not going to, you don't want to keep the voice of God out of your congregation, right? So if God sure. works equally among all the members, mm-hmm. um, and that's been a, a, a value right along. Mm-hmm. And not just about uh, gender div- divisions either. I mean, ethnicities and those kind of things. That's been a, a regular feature from new part on down. Um, beyond that, the, the educational places have been open to it. And I think some of our local churches choosing their own pastors mm-hmm. and having the ability to call who they want fits there in the sense that if you've, it, like, if you've seen, it's easy to be against somebody you've never seen minister, mm-hmm. right? But like you're watching this person and they're right there in front of you and it's like, well... They look like they're called. At, at that point, when you, all you have to convince is 25 people who know you, yeah. right? the scale goes down on the whole conversation because it's like, well, this person is obviously gifted. Let them do what they're good at. When you move from those small places or across tables to broader conversations, that's always more difficult, right? Because now you're talking about something in an abstraction right. that's, that's an idea out there that you don't have to necessarily do with the consequence of the, what happens in front of you. And so for a Seventh-day Baptist, we've always been close enough together relationally that there's not been interest. Now, we could talk about like how many women pastors there actually are, and that number is not enormous. Um, but there's always been freedom to do those sorts of things, and there's been training available for women who want to do things. One of my other hats in this job is training people for ministry, and we train women in ministry who their churches tell us they want trained. Yeah, and, and that goes all the way back to the 1850s, right, Michael? Because you were talking about yeah. Sarah, um, Sarah Lindsay, Sarah yeah. Lindsay earlier, and mm-hmm. she went she went to Alfred, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. she was trained by Seventh Day Baptist, and then converts to become an Adventist, and then becomes the first uh, licensed uh, female minister in the Adventist Church. Well, you've redeemed yourself now, Kevin. Yeah, <laughs> I did. Oh boy, but but, but tell me that. <laughs> that's good. When you say she went to Alfred, you're talking about Batman's Butler. Yeah, Explain so that for people. What do you mean she went to Alfred? No. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. No, I mean, you want to take it, Nick? I mean, no, go ahead. It's, 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 <laughs> but now I have to give an answer. What if I'm wrong? <laughs> I mean, it's the Seventh-day Baptist uh, college. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. I mean. It started as a select school in the 1840s. Right. They went to a theology. They had a theology department late mm-hmm. 1840s, early 1850s. And then after that, there was increasingly, that's where the seminary was started. Yeah, and is and it so in northern was, Pennsylvania? Is that where it's uh, at? Allegheny County, New York. Okay, right. So, so right, right on that, yeah. that right southern on the border. Yeah. 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 And Sarah goes to school there, 1851, 52. So that's actually pretty early on. And that's that's not uncommon. There were other women present. So, like, we had women, who, we have a, a SDB woman named Experience Fan, uh, Fitz Randolph Burdick. Cool name. Yeah. yeah, her name is Experience. They call her they call her Peary. But um, yeah, so and but she ends up pastoring in northern Wisconsin, but she lives with her pastor husband in a town in Minnesota with the same name. So there's New Auburn, Minnesota, and New Auburn, Wisconsin. Married couple, both pastors, both pastoring both things. So on Sabbath, huh. on Friday morning, she would get on the train and ride to Wisconsin from Minnesota, and then she would pastor her congregation, and then on Sunday she would go back. Huh. And so, like, but like, this is what STBs have done with women ministers, right? Where it's like, if you're called, go do the thing. And then if there's somebody who calls you, great. Right. Now, the cultural piece around that's harder, right? Because there's not always a church ready to take somebody who they don't know personally. And so there's difficulties in those spaces. But in terms of the opportunity, the possibility, it's been there basically from the beginning of our educational movement. That's nice. I wish it had been that way for us all the time. Yeah. It is not. But whatever. And not without, I mean, even <laughs> even having that said, it's not like, you know, if you were talking to a woman in 1880, did they feel like they had all the opportunity? Right. I mean, no. Yeah. But there were, it's kind of yeah. fascinating too, like there were lots of SDB women involved in the suffrage movement. 
Yeah. And I didn't get a chance to tell this with you guys, but it's a funny story. The professors of the seminary professor, the, the, the wives of the seminary professors at Alfred University overtook a polling place and wouldn't let, wouldn't let the men in to vote because they couldn't vote. Really? Like militant, took over the polling place. They went oh, to jail. Oh, come on. That's spent, cool. They spent the week. <laughs> Great the, story. Here, yeah. the story gets better. The judge that says, well, you're going you're gonna to have to, you know, put, bring, out, bring these people in. They've been in charge with doing whatever. And uh, the woman says, well, how are you going to prove we're women? How do you know we're not men? They dismissed the case, and that was the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's hilarious. And they were probably trying to put Jesus Christ into the presidency, presidency right? <laughs> the, the, the fifth president? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> William Miller actually argued that, I mean, he, he, he may have been joking, but he said something about Jesus Christ becoming the next president. I've heard some modern candidates suggest something of the ilk, although not, maybe not that, that directly. All right. But, all right, we're not going to go there. No, I'm going to get myself voted off. Now it's perfect. All four of us, great. Finally uh, made it off. All right. Yeah, There's circle. so much here that we could be that we could be talking about. I learned so much today, and I'm sure, you know, for these Adventists who are listening, it's like, yeah, I've heard of Rachel Oaks, and we're proud of ourselves because we heard of that one connection. There's so much more here. She was a woman, very rich. She liked books. How do we know she was? <laughs> Oh, you can tell we're having a good time here. You know, but what I what I love about this time period is it's just such a such a, a creative, theologically more open environment than it seems that we've 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 changed. Yeah. Right. I mean, here she is, this woman who's who's an Adventist preacher, right? Receives her training at Alfred, and and you know what? Not the butler. Not the butler. No, was not trained. She's Batgirl. <laughs> Yeah, but today, I mean, I'm just saying today, by, by contrast, you, you have people like, where'd you go to school? Oh, that school, whatever it is, must have tainted you. It might, you know, you got to go to an Adventist school or you, yeah, I don't know if that exists in your world too, but. It did, but re- reverse in, in weird ways. Now, huh. we, our seminary closed in 1963, and so we've been getting training from evangelical institutions, and so there's a little bit of like, where'd you go? It's like, oh, it crosses this bar, you're this tall, you can ride the yeah, ride, yeah, okay, yeah. fine. And that's kind of the way. That's kind of the way it works for us now. Yeah. Talk to us for just a second. I know our time's wrapping up yep. uh, quickly, but uh, talk to us for just a second about the whole Seventh Day Baptist and the fundamentalist modernist oh, whole yeah. controversy. We, I, yeah. I think our listeners would enjoy hearing about that. Our trouble started about 1900. Um, this A.H. Lewis, he was actually the editor of the Sabbath Recorder later in his life, and he consented to the publication of a, a variety of articles, which took a certain group of people and made them very upset. And essentially, what they were doing was what we'd now call like modern, you know, historical criticism of, of the text, like what, what now you would learn in a conservative school. And at the time it caused some real problems because it was the whole, you know, don't tell me what I can do with my Bible. I don't need all that fancy academic stuff. Um, that was obviously part of a broader cult, uh, cultural problem, but the broad strokes are by 1921, we had a real problem. Um, it was starting to cause difficulties in 1921. We had a separate publication started by the fundamentalists because they didn't trust the people who were producing the Sabbath recorder. That was called the Exponent. Um, by 1932 or three, the conference decided to, to have a committee on denominational harmony who met for a couple of years and after a period of time kind of came back with some, some recommendations. It led to a new statement of belief in 1937, and that was kind of the truce. By that point, the number of people who um, were massively upset on one side or the other had basically gone, and the folks who wanted the truth, the truce were the ones who remained. So, wait, so you got rid of your fundamentalists. Can you give us any pointers? Or they got rid of themselves? <laughs> they, they, they really got rid of themselves. You know, what happened was over time, they, they wanted action immediately. Yeah. And we were slow enough to move that the people who wanted action to prove that we were doctrinally pure or whatever, I mean, whatever they're after there. Too pure. 
right? That what yeah. they, they, we didn't move quickly enough to prove that we were them, and so they left. And at, at that point, what happens is the longer that that controversy hangs, yeah. if, you, if the center holds, the edges flee, mm. right? And so what happened was the center held, and there was no, they, did, they stopped making more fundamentalists and the ones who were left had yeah. either enough family connection or other reasons, yeah. you know, didn't, they, were, they loved the people or they loved something else more than they loved the division that the argument created. And that's how we ended up with the truce. I love so. that idea about the center holding. We're more like a donut. Anyways, go ahead. I was about to say, so <laughs> point, a takeaway point for us, right? So our center isn't strong enough? Or? Yeah. Well, culturally, <laughs> We're if you donut. talk about it at this point, <laughs> yeah, right. the, way that, the way that you build a center that holds is to have a, a, a certain amount of things that everybody holds in common. There are truths that you yeah. grab together. What the essence of the, the, the last bit culturally, say 40 or so years, has been from basically the beginning of, and I'm trying to talk about this historically, not as a person who has opinions about these things, but basically from the creation of the moral majority, what you end up with is sort of a absolutizing language where there's no middle. If you are these things, then you are one or the other. And the more people who flee to one of those ends because they fear the other side, the less middle you have. And as you erode that middle, what you end up with is sort of a, a no man's land where it's not safe to be. And at that point, when people fear for safety and they have to choose between bad options, that's when the trouble starts. And I think culturally, not just in any specific place, but in American life in general, there are many things that fall on that, that problem. That's the danger zone, right? And, and, and in many, many ways, it feels to me, as a, like, as maybe as a as historian, as a, as a person watching what's happening, it feels like increasingly that's where we are. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Well, that's a great place to, to leave this. I actually, I want to learn more. I want to have this conversation too. Right. But maybe we'll have to come back up Another time visit sure. you? Is that, are we welcome research. back? Absolutely. Oh, thank you yeah. so much. All of us? <laughs> you notice yeah, he said... <laughs> okay, go ahead. Just checking. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe... He looked away would... from Kevin, you know. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> hey, come on. <laughs> I like books. I like women. <laughs> <laughs> my, my wife I first like and foremost. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> Edit that out. <laughs> well, it's been a great day. It really, truly has been a great day, and... Uh, I just want to thank our listeners for joining us for this special Matthew still uh, laughing <laughs> episode of the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast in Adventist History Extra uh, here at the Seventh Day Baptist General Conference with our special guests uh, Nicholas Kirsten and uh, Don't Kevin say the Burton. I <laughs> <laughs> already did it at the beginning. <laughs> so, <laughs> We'll have another special episode again. Uh, join, be sure to join us again next month for more uh, learning more about our Adventist past. This is why I script my episodes. <laughs> and Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. God take us out of this world if he does not want us to be contaminated by